Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we near the end of our time in 2 Timothy. A few weeks ago, in chapter 3, we spent a week discussing the reality and our belief that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed, God gave it, every word is intentionally there by God, and is everything that God wanted to tell us. As a result, we believe that the Bible is sufficient. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And we believe that every part of the Bible is that. It is true, it is inspired, and it is sufficient. But sometimes we read the Bible and we come across some texts like Genesis 5 or 1 Chronicles 1 through 9, where where it's just like giant family trees. This guy begat or had a son named this guy who had a son named this guy. And we read that and we think profitable. Okay. Sometimes we come across things like the end of Paul's letter, like what we'll cover today, which seem like a bunch of uh, thank yous and, and names and seemingly inconsequential instructions. And if we're honest, as a result, as we're reading through scripture, we tend to just like skim over those sections. You think I'm going to read about Israel in first Chronicles and we get to first Chronicles one and we go, whoa, okay. We turn the page and we turn the page and we turn the page until we get to 10 and we're okay. Now we got something here and we just kind of skim the rest to move on really to, you know, the, the more important parts of the Bible. Well, as we begin to conclude our study in Second Timothy, we arrive at the seemingly inconsequential section of the letter. But over the next few weeks, we will discover that there are some really important lessons for us contained in these seemingly inconsequential texts. And so, I would encourage you today to engage with me as we examine this text. And and I would encourage you to resist the temptation to see it as an inconsequential portion of Scripture because we believe that it is all inspired and sufficient. It's all profitable. So let's, let's read this text I'm talking about and let's see what we're looking at. Beginning in verse number 9 of 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. And that's how far we'll get today. Now, This section serves as some final instructions to Timothy. However, unlike the other instructions in the letter, these appear to be more, you know, kind of practical instructions. Hey, Timothy, come bring my coat when you come. It doesn't seem very, uh, shall we say, spiritual, churchy type instructions. However, as Christians, we must understand that everything is spiritual. Everything is theological, even simple instructions. And so everything reflects our theology. 
And as a result, even this section comes and contains some important lessons that we need and that will help us in our spiritual walk. And so today I want to draw our attention to two important lessons we can learn from this text. The first lesson I think we can learn from this text is to beware the seduction of the world. In this text, there's a contrast between two of Paul's companions, two important individuals in Paul's life, which remind us to beware the seduction of the world. In verse 10, we are introduced again to a man named Demas, from whom we are reminded that love of the world leads to disaster. He says, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, Demas was a companion of Paul on several occasions. He traveled with Paul uh, on, on many of his journeys, and he was well known to the churches in Galatia. He was mentioned in two other of Paul's epistles in Colossians 4.14. Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas, his companion. In Philemon 24, he says, and uh, Mark greets you, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And so in these letters, he's presented as this fellow worker with Paul that they're aware of, that they should look to, and that is greeting them with love. But now something has changed. Mark informs us that Demas has deserted him and gone to Thessalonica. That word deserted, there's an interesting word. It actually means to abandon, to, to leave in the lurch, to forsake, to leave someone helpless in a dire situation. It's a strong word. It's the same word Jesus used uh, when quoting from Psalm 21.1 when he cried on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's that same word. Why have you deserted me? It's a strong word that he's using of Demas here. Demas had left Paul and returned to what was possibly his hometown in Thessalonica. You have to ask the question, why would he do this? Why would he desert Paul who he traveled around the world with? Why would he abandon him? And, and we're not told the exact reason for us. We're simply told that he loved the present world. Now, there are a couple of important aspects to this statement that we need to note. This statement sets up a contrast with the previous verse, verse 9. Remember, we looked at this last week. It said that henceforth, verse 8, henceforth, excuse me, with verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. And now two verses later, he says, but Demas is in love with this present world. The, the crown of righteousness awaits all who love Christ's appearing, but Demas loved this world. And there's this contrasting set of values that appears here. These contrasting set of values that, that really are at war inside every one of us. The present world and its values versus the age to come. And its promises. We're reminded again of Augustine's word in his classic book, City of God. He said this. Two cities have been founded by two lovers. 
The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former looks for glory from man. The latter finds its highest glory in God. The clash of values had occurred in Demas's thinking, leading him to choose comforts available immediately instead of those at the end of life's trials that he was facing. We also note that he's in love with the world. This means all that that mass of thoughts and opinions and speculations and hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations, philosophies of the culture of the world. It's its priorities, the thought process of everyone around us. He he loved the stuff of the here and now. But we see that it is evil. Because it's God is the evil one. And so Christians are not to be conformed to it. We see it's evil in Galatians 1, 4, where we're told Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. And it's evil because 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us it's God is the evil one. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so as Christians, we're not to be conformed to this world. Second, or excuse me, Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. But as the risk increased, Demas' resolve decreased. Because he loved this present world more than he loved the Lord. We're reminded in 1 John 2. 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We are tempted by a love for this world. We, we fill our mind with this world's entertainment and news. We fill our lives with, with finite things. We, we love money. We love stuff. We desire the, the things we can feel and experience. We love the pretty stuff, the flashy stuff, the, the nice stuff, and, and the new stuff. And ultimately... We set our desires above God's desires. But this is not from God. This is fleeting. It is temporary. Only the ways that we serve God and use these things to serve God lasts. Don't let a love for this world draw your attention away from God. Beware the seduction of the world. It only leads to disaster and it will pass away. And it seduces us from every angle. We're seduced by the politics of this world. We love the talk shows and the radio to get involved and fill our minds with it. But it's temporary. We love the entertainment of this world. Sports and the movies and the shows and the music. And we focus on it. And we can quote the lyrics and the lines inside and out. But getting God's word, eh, not so much. 
We love the stuff of this world. The newest outdoor stuff we can get. The best trips we can take. The shiniest car we can have. The biggest bank account. But it's not of God. It is fleeting. It is temporary. And it is seductive. I hope we can readily admit that we struggle with this. We're seduced by the flashiness of this world. John Bunyan, in his classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, identified it as being uh, seduced by the frivolities of what he called vanity fair. Like a carnival filled with all these exciting things that steal our attention away from what is important. However, when this is the case, when we are seduced by the things of this world, if we recognize I'm struggling with that, it doesn't have to be the end. It doesn't have to be the end of our story because forgiveness and redemption can always be found through Christ. And we see this through the second individual in Paul's life, a man named Mark, known elsewhere as John or John Mark. We see this wonderful truth through that companion. Verse 11, partway through, he says, get Mark, bring him with you, for he is very useful for me. For ministry. It's interesting. He says to bring him with him. Because he's helpful to me. He's serviceable to me. It's the same term employed in. Chapter 2 verse 21. Of the cleansed instruments. And then in Philippians or Philemon 11. Of the converted Onesimus. Now why is this so important? Well we need to remember Mark's life. We're introduced to Mark. In Acts chapter 12. There we learn that he was the son of Mary of Jerusalem and the cousin of a leader there in Jerusalem by the name of Barnabas. His family was very ingrained in that early church. In fact, his family hosted the prayer meeting when Peter was imprisoned and they prayed that Peter would be released. You remember the story, the angel released Peter and he comes to the prayer meeting to this home, Mark's home, and knocks on the door and the, the servant opens the door, sees it's Mark and slams the door back shut on him and runs back and tells him, Peter's here, right? And, and, and this is Mark's home. Mark is raised in Christianity. Well, he begins to travel with Paul. In Acts 13, we learn that he accompanies Paul and his cousin Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And so he travels around preaching the gospel with Paul and with Barnabas and seeing this great work of God. But somewhere along the way, something happened. And we're told that when he got to Pamphylia, he returned to Jerusalem. Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. We're not told why he left, but we're told the results. You see, the result was when Paul and Barnabas went to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas had this idea, hey, let's, Paul, let's give Mark another chance. Let's bring my cousin with us. And Paul said, I don't want deserters with me. No. In fact, the strife was so strong that they split up. Paul took Titus and Silas and went on his journey. And Barnabas took Mark and went on a journey of his own. But Mark at this point is known as a deserter. He left. The going got tough and he tucked tail and went home. But this was not the end of Mark's story. 
Apparently, he learned his lesson from being infatuated by the world. He repented of his love of the world and he became an important and useful minister. In fact, later we discover that he ministered with Peter in Rome where he actually penned a book of the Bible, the Gospel of Mark. We're told in 1 Peter 5.13, She who is at Babylon, Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Mark, who was able to overcome these earlier challenges, developed into a trusted and useful co-worker in the ministry. So much so now that Paul desired that Timothy bring Mark along with him in his final days. The implication seems to be that he desired that Mark take over the ministry there in Rome. Having served in this church in that city already, he was acquainted with it. He was familiar with the people and he could serve them well. And and because of Nero's brutal persecutions of the church, many of the believers had fled the capital and those who remained there in Rome were in constant danger. They needed spiritual guidance and comfort more than ever. And Mark, who loved the world and deserted Paul and Barnabas, was now the one Paul wanted to come and encourage the church there in Rome. Your beginning doesn't have to be your ending. The story can be corrected. It can be rewritten. This is the case with Mark. And this can be the case with us. As we struggle with the love of the world, as we struggle with our commitment to God, we're reminded redemption and forgiveness are found at the cross. Just like Mark, we can come to Christ And seek forgiveness. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us is depraved. Every one of us is corrupted by evil. Every one of us is separated from God by sin. And that's the message of the cross. That God in His love sent His Son to take our sin on Himself so that when we come to Him and confess our sin and give our lives to Him, He rewrites it, He gives us hope, and He makes us useful. The reality is, you can be faithful. You can serve God. Your past doesn't need To define you. No, forgiveness and redemption can always be found through Christ. From this seemingly insignificant passage, we're reminded to beware the seduction of the world because it leads to disaster, but that forgiveness and redemption are found through Christ, and we can be faithful. A second lesson we can learn from this text is to value faithful. Friends, value faithful friends. Let's look at the middle of verse 10. He says, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Verse 12, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Often we value old friends. Right, the ones we've known a really long time that are really close to us. That's how we measure the value 
of a friend. We value the people perhaps that we grew up with and we've known for years. And, and, and we should seek to value and maintain these friendships. However, more than these, we ought to value faithful friends. And this text informs us of three aspects of what it means to be a faithful friend that we should place a high value on. First, we see that faithful friends, the friends we should value, are the ones who are faithful in ministry. In other words, value faithful ministry. He says, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, verse 12, Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. Now, the way that these three are mentioned is different from the way that Demas is mentioned. While he deserted Paul... The wording indicates that these men were sent out by Paul to serve in the ministry to the churches he could no longer serve because he was about to die. Crescens went to Galatia. This term was used to designate two different areas, uh, both the Roman province in Asia that we're familiar with, but also Gaul, which covered parts of modern-day France and Belgium, Switzerland, and northern Italy. Church tradition says that it's the latter, that he went north from Rome into Gaul, and he founded the churches in Vienna and in Lyons and became the bishop of Chalcedon. It also is possible that it's the other Galatia. Either way... He was a faithful companion that Paul was sending into the frontier of new missions. Paul's faithful companion, Titus, had gone to Dalmatia. Dalmatia was in the southwestern part of Illyricum on the eastern shore of the Adriatic Sea. In other words, it's modern-day Yugoslavia is where he went. Now, this task for Titus called for resolve and faithfulness traveling to the borders of the Roman Empire there in the first century meant leaving comforts. And further, the Dalmatians were not known for being the nicest people. In fact, they were known for being particularly hostile. They loved a good fight. So, Titus would need to be able and courageous and consecrated as he traveled to the frontiers of the Roman Empire to spread the gospel. Last member that's mentioned is Tychicus. Verse 12 informs us that he's been sent to Ephesus to replace Timothy. Now, Tychicus probably could have carried the letter to Timothy, and this verse would seem to confirm that. Tychicus was Timothy's replacement there in Ephesus. And this verse would serve as a kind of validation to the Ephesian church that Tychicus was Paul's envoy. He was a natural choice for this task. He was Asian and had been with Paul on his trip from Macedonia through Troas and Miletus, where Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders and presumably on to Jerusalem. We find that in Acts 20, 4 and 5. We find that he had already carried Paul's letter to the Ephesian church and remained to tell them how Paul was doing. Ephesians 6, 20 and 21. So that you may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Here's the idea, though. Ephesus was filled with challenges. It was a challenging church. We observed... 
the reality when we looked at first Timothy, they loved to run after the latest religious fad. They engaged in, in foolish debates. The implication earlier in 2 Timothy was that they'd even allowed false teachers to come in and lead them away. And they were now actually accumulating teachers to scratch their ears. But Tychicus was faithful. He faced this group before and responded admirably. And so now he was tasked to do it again. And as we look at these three seemingly throwaway phrases, we, we see that Paul valued these companions in ministry. He encouraged Timothy to value them as well. You and I should value people who are faithful in service to God. Those are the kinds of companions that we should seek. But to do that, we need to do that. We need to be faithful. Second, we are to value faithful service. He says, Luke alone is with me. Luke was Paul's beloved physician and companion. The author of Acts, he traveled with Paul. Excuse me. It comes and goes. felt like I was going to sneeze there. It'll come at some point. Paul was the, uh, Luke was the author of Acts. He was Paul's beloved physician and companion who traveled with him on his missionary journeys and served him not just as his physician, but as his fellow minister and as his companion. And now as Paul is sitting in a cold, dark Roman prison, Luke is faithfully serving him, caring for his medical needs and, and ministering to him emotionally and spiritually. But we need to understand this was a dangerous task. Paul was in prison and sentenced to death for being a Christian. Nero was on a, a course to eliminate Christianity. And so to associate yourself with Paul, in fact, to be so closely ministering to him, was to put yourself in grave danger. It was a huge risk. And yet, Luke stuck with him. Are we that kind of friend? Willing to take risks to serve others? You know, this means that sometimes we're going to have to leave ourselves vulnerable. Actually open our lives to other people. To allow them in. It means we serve them when it's not convenient. It means that when we get those calls late at night, we're willing to go. When we feel like we've got a number of other things we need to do, we're willing to serve. We need to value faithful service. But again, to have companions like that, we need to be like that. Finally, we need to value faithful hospitality. Verse 13, he says, When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now, this really, above everything we've looked at, might seem like a throwaway instruction. Timothy, when you come, bring my coat and my books. But, there's an important lesson here regarding the companions we value. While going through Troas on the way to Ephesus, it's apparent that Paul was arrested and he was forced to leave some items with Carpus. 
an otherwise unknown Christian. Never heard of him before. And Paul was taken to Rome. Evidently, while Paul was in Troas, he stayed with Carpus. Evidently, he opened his home to Paul and provided for him while Paul resided there in that city. And when Paul was arrested, Carpus was trusted to take care of the most valuable items Paul had. He says, bring my cloak. Now, we think of that today. And if you're like me, you have numerous coats. In fact, in a few weeks here, if you're like me, you'll probably be taking your fall coats and putting them away to get out your winter coats, right? And then when winter is over, you put away your winter coat to get out your spring coat, right? We got coats for every season, multiple ones. This was not the case in the first century. This cloak would have been a large sleeveless outer garment made of a single piece of heavy material used for protection against cold and the elements. It was not a garment one took lightly because it was relatively expensive. Most men only owned one coat. So to leave it with someone was a risk. Further, Paul left with him his most prized possessions, his books. Ask any preacher what their most prized possession is. They'll tell you it's the books. This was Paul's most prized possession. He says also the books and above all the parchments. Now, we don't know exactly what they were, but we can certainly speculate. The books were something that became popular in the church. They were, they were codex is what it was called. And it was a book like what we have today. It was popular, became popular in the church. They usually contained copies of the Old Testament or the New Testament or other important early Christian writings. The parchment would have been made of skin or vellum, what you think of as a scroll. Probably it refers to a copy of the Old Testament. Or perhaps it could be some sort of legal paperwork he needed. Although that does seem unlikely since he had already been condemned to death. There wasn't a whole lot of legal stuff left. In any case... All of these items were of great value to Paul. And the language implies that Paul's decision to leave these things with Carpus was a considered decision. Who can I have take care of these things that are so important to me? And Carpus was the one that he chose. He trusted Carpus because of his hospitality. Are you a trustworthy friend? Are you a friend that can be trusted to take care of tasks and projects and things assigned to you? You know, often we view our relationship with fellow believers as unimportant. Let me encourage you to place a high value on your relationships with one another. Value the companions who engage with you in ministry. You should have friends and companions outside of this church, but your closest friends and companions ought to be the ones inside. Value the companions who serve others. Value the companions who demonstrate hospitality. Be that kind of companion. Again, I'm encouraging you not to be a Sunday Christian who shows up and sits in a pew and goes away, and if you miss we never even notice because you're not engaged. You're not a companion. Let me also express how thankful I am at the tight-knit community of many in the church. Value that. 
Expand that. Be a trusted companion. Today's been kind of a shotgun message. Typically, we try to preach more of a bullet message, one point that we just drive home. Today's been more of a shotgun as we look at this seemingly unimportant text, a text that we might be tempted to skim over and move on to something more substantial. But as we've seen, if we do that, we miss some important lessons. We miss the reminder that this world seeks to tear your attention away from God. Don't be seduced by the world. And instead, value your family in Christ and faithfully serve them. So, don't just skim over the texts. Ask what you can learn from them. Seek the lessons from them. And from this one, learn these four lessons. Number one, identify the things in your life that are more important to you than God. Don't be Demas. Identify those things that are more important to you than God. And implied in that is, cut them out. Number two, don't be seduced by the things of this world. They're nice. They're enjoyable. They're shiny. Many times they're good. But they're not best. They steal our attention away from God. Don't be seduced by the things of this world. They're passing away. But God lasts forever. Number three, develop and value godly friendships. Seek out good companions. But to do that, number four, be a faithful friend. To have faithful friends, you need to be one. And let's strive together to Grow in Christ's likeness as we obey these commands. Father, we thank you, even for texts like today that seem unimportant, that don't seem very profitable at first blush. We thank you that even in these, there are things in them that help us grow into Christ's likeness and sanctification. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be seduced by this world, even things that seem right even when it feels like what we are doing is noble. Help us to recognize that we serve a kingdom that is not of this world, that is far greater, and to value that above all things. And so, Lord, help us to value our relationships with one another, to spur one another to love and to good works, that we might grow in the knowledge of you, that we might grow in obedience to you until the day that you return. We do love you. In Jesus' name, amen.